This is Movie Maker Interviews. I am Eric Stoyer. Uh, today on the show, I talk with Alice Wu, who is the writer and director of the movie The Half of It. Uh, this is a really great teen movie. It draws a lot from the 80s and 90s teen movies that I grew up with, but it's also a big departure from those movies. It's about a Chinese-American girl in a small town where everyone else is white. Uh, it's about a Chinese-American girl who's in love with another girl. Uh, the movie's been out since May on Netflix, and it's become a really big deal with young people in the last few months. I mean, search uh, the half of it fan art on Google, and all this amazing stuff comes up. It's a, a lot of people out there really, really touched by this movie. And they're into it because it's great. I mean, it's really sweet and funny, and it's got a perfect cast, and it received the top award at this year's Tribeca Film Festival, actually. It's It's great. Uh, but surely its popularity also has a lot to do with the fact that so many more kids can see themselves represented in a story like this. Uh, anyway, I really liked talking to Alice. She's super cool. And some fun facts about her. She went to MIT when she was 16. She got her master's degree in computer science at Stanford. And she worked as a programmer for Microsoft before she started making movies. So she's kind of smart. As always, send me a note to say what's up or recommend a guest that we should have on the show. I'm at eric at moviemaker.com, E-R-I-C at moviemaker.com. All right, hope you enjoy this conversation with Alice Wu. I'm always interested to hear from people, especially if they've written and directed a film. Like, Did you start with the character or the story first? Oh, wow. What a good question. Um, I'm not sure. Like, this is what comes to mind. I feel like I started with the story first, but it's a little bit um, complicated because truthfully what I start with is emotion. Like truthfully where I start is, um, you know, and I've only, I've only written two things for myself to direct like the, uh, uh, and both things were um, ways for me to understand something about myself. Like there's usually an emotional question that I'm trying to answer for myself. Uh, and so my first film, uh, Saving Face, was very much an attempt for me. I was in my late 20s when I wrote it and my mom was going through something really challenging in her life. And, I, and I'm gay and, you know, and then we had that to contend with. And I think I was really trying to answer something about both sort of how do you hope for the best for your mom when you yourself can't even figure out your own life Right. Uh, and not to mention, like, maybe something about what is the notion of being a good daughter? What does that even mean? Right. And that that film very much deals with like a main character who's desperately trying to be uh, the best daughter she can. And her mom like fucks up in this rather spectacular way. And the two of them have to deal with that. Um, and so I, I, I think you know, really the process of writing that was for me to try and understand and in a way communicate to my mom too, that it's okay not to, not to be so perfect. It's okay to, to mess up and I'm still going to love her and the world will still love her. Um, and I think the half of it was very much my attempt to sort of understand two things. There's both one thing in the past, which is that, uh, uh, so I, I'm lesbian, but my first like, if I'm honest, my first really huge heartbreak really actually was over a guy, a straight guy who was my best friend um, and who really helped me when I was coming out to myself, uh, my senior year of college. And um, 
And eventually, like we were very, very close, but eventually he ended up uh, in a relationship uh, that uh, was threatened by our friendship, even though it was very clear there was like nothing romantic or so. Well, that's the thing. There's nothing sexual going on, but I think the realities of best friendships, there is kind of a romance to it, right? And I think I was trying to understand something about like, you know, the, the slow, quiet disintegration of our friendship because it was a little hard to figure out how to navigate that, I, I, I kind of just wanted to understand something about love and romantic love versus friend love and where it does get blurry, but is there a world where, you know, you could have both? And I, I think there was just, it, it, so it's not so clean. Like a lot of times it's after I finished writing something and after I've made the film. And frankly, it probably isn't until I have interviews like this where I, you know, I'm gearing up to have interviews where I start to think, what was that about? And then I suddenly really hits me like, oh, this is what I worked out in the process of that film. Um, and the other part of it is in the present day, I think I think a lot about love because I, you know, I'm 50 now. And I would say for most of my life, I thought once you found the person that you're gonna spend the rest of your life with, that your life would be complete. You know, like that would be the ultimate sort of purpose of, of of, you know, like, and my, my best friend at the time used to talk about this. It's like, it doesn't really matter if you do on your career, like nothing matters. The key is finding that person that you're gonna be with and you'll live happily ever after and that will make the biggest difference in your life. And I, I don't know that that's, I'm not saying that's wrong. You know, the, the studies actually show that the biggest, most important choice you can make is who you choose as a partner if you're, but I would say that, um, as I get older, I have generally found for myself and for my friends that once they do find someone or they get married, it doesn't really seem like, and then their life is just this crescendo of wonderfulness and no other questions need to be answered. It does kind of seem like that's great. And then suddenly there's like all these other things that come up about how you live your life. And, and I think knowing that made me really think like, God, I, I personally have exalted romantic love in my life, but I also live in a society. And frankly, I'm in an industry that exalts romantic love. And um, so I think I just really wanted to write something where I'm like, what if, what if there are just so many different forms of love and they all are, you know, equally valid. Um, and so in that sense, I think coming from that basis, the story then in my head was like, all right, I, I, I think I do want to try and write about like a lesbian straight guy relationship. Um, and, and you can say it so that, that you could say that started from the story, but in a way, I guess you could say that started from the character too, because the emotional basis from where I'm coming from, I'm obviously drawing upon, you know, variations of real people in my life. So I don't know, does that answer your question? Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful answer. I love the idea that it starts from, a, from trying to articulate a feeling more than anything. I think that's, that's really interesting. Um, I, I've seen others when they've been talking about this film say something that I agree with very much, which is that you do excellently in the movie is give a sense of place. Um, you paint a picture of what this area is like and also what it is like for Ellie to, to, to live there. Um, where did you grow up and how did it influence the way you handled your decisions about, about, about setting? Mm. Oh God, another great question. I, uh, so I actually grew up in the Bay area. Um, I was born in, uh, San Jose in Kaiser hospital, Santa Clara before, again, it was so long ago, it was not, it was not the big tech hotspot. It was now, it is now, right. It was, uh, like, I remember our apartment building. I think it might've, I don't even, to be honest, like I mainly, 
like I didn't speak English really till I went to school. I, I spoke Mandarin first, but then I think I actually spoke Spanish next because all everyone in that complex was either Latino or black. Um, and it was just a very different kind of, uh, you know, I, I think the seventies, uh, there's like a different pattern of immigration happening here. Um, we moved around the Bay area. And I think a lot of that, well, we moved to Michigan when between the ages of one and five, I lived in, in Troy, Michigan. Uh, and then we moved back to the Bay area. And a lot of that I think is really tracking my parents, uh, them, you know, coming as young immigrants trying to make it in this country, like tracking their economic growth from being, you know, people who have a lot of promise, but are financially, you know, it's a little tougher to people who eventually could buy a house, right? Like, and then it's like, okay, we went from this apartment to a better apartment, to our first house, to a better house in a better neighborhood, like really tracking that immigrant rise. And so for me, it was interesting moving between, if I'm honest, at least at that time, when we moved to a better neighborhood, I, it was almost like overnight, all of a sudden, all my classmates were white. And I was like, what happened? I mean, I don't think I processed it that clearly. I just knew it, it just felt different. You know, like at that, you still think kids are kids, but actually kids are not. Like Kids are quite different with you um, or can be depending on um, what they're familiar with and, and, and you know, social class and, and economic class. And, um, and I think for me, when I was thinking about this story, Trump had just been elected. Uh, and I think it was a moment where I thought a lot about red states and blue states and, and, and I knew that like, I was, I was writing this, I could make it a period piece, right? I could be like, okay, she's, it's going to be set in the nineties or something set in the eighties, like something closer to exactly what I would have experienced then. But honestly, where I grew up back then has changed so much. It's become a much more of a melting pot, um, so I was kind of looking for a place where I could emotionally, it, it could emotionally remind me of what it was like to feel very different, but also a place where it would feel very unsafe to come out as anything other than, you know, straight. And I'm not suggesting that like the various places I grew up in the Bay Area, it's like super easy to come out uh, as queer, but it feels to me like they'd be a lot easier. Like I, I know that that's something, you know, I, uh, uh, that happens, whereas there are huge sections of the country where that is not something that would not, that would be easily, um, uh, where there would not at least be a strong sense of, of, of social pressure um, to, to be straight. And I had spent my 20s in Washington state, like I lived in Seattle. Uh, and so I knew Eastern Washington and I wanted to find a place where, um, I didn't think I could set it in the South because then I feel like I, I would need to comment on black, white, straight, you know, race relations. And I didn't feel like I was qualified in this course of the story to comment on that very well. Um, but I, I felt like Eastern Washington state, which is very white and very conservative, um, but not quite so, not so much like Ku Klux Klan conservative, although Idaho is like <laughs> right over the border and they, they actually are kind of Ku Klux Klan conservative. But Eastern Washington, it would be a place where it feels like a small town that like America forgot. Um, I felt like it, it was a way for me to understand and maybe try and empathize a bit with, you know, cause I, I think at least for many people, including myself, um, I think we all probably grew up in families that 
we're not necessarily accepting of something or other, right? Like I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm an Asian lesbian, but the reality is I totally grew up in a family that had all sorts of racist and sexist and, you know, heterosexist attitudes. And my parents are wonderful people. There was just, you know, what they knew. And, and I, I, I just felt like, well, I want to sort of represent an area where it, it doesn't feel like these are bad people, but you can see the effects of, of maybe the, the, how some of the, um, small-mindedness could end up affecting everybody, whether you're gay or straight or you're, you know, Asian or white. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of where, what, what the thinking was. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what I was responding to. I mean, there, there's 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 environment uh, elements too that I really responded to. I mean, it just feels very much like what I know about Eastern Washington. And you don't beat over people over the head with it. I, I think it's, it's there's a lot of subtlety to the way you uh, portray all that that is very effective. But but what what you were just getting at right there, that's I think what resonated with me is that the character, the story, but also the character of Ellie comes at all of this. Uh, with a lot of empathy. And I wanted to know, related to that, whether you grew up with a lot of religion around you and um, if that informed whether you did or didn't, how you constructed these people, these other characters in a way that didn't feel uh, condescending on the one hand and, and actually did have a lot of empathy. Oh God, you really are like knocking out of the ballpark with these questions because it's, uh, uh, it's so funny. So my parents are not technically religious. Like they're not you know, we didn't go to a church. Um, I do kind of laugh that it, that said they felt religious because they were so Chinese. It was like, my mom was very, very, like did not want, despite the fact that I was born here, like did not want me to be Americanized, just thought that would be, you know, so it's almost like we lived in the church of like, you know, Chinese immigrants. Now that said, when we just had moved to this neighborhood, I think it was like six. Um, and I guess uh, some folks came to the door and told my mom the world was ending at like the end of the year um, and like had pictures of Armageddon and how like it was gonna be terrible. And if you're not saved, you're going to hell. And my mom, which is who I adore and is hilarious, but this is exactly how she would think. She's like, well, it's gonna be too late for, you know, your dad and I, but for you, it might be okay. And so the only family, and I, I remember this because at that point, like I remember our house got like TP'd or tissue papered and I didn't understand that was bad. I was just like, oh, interesting. Like someone had decorated our house, right? But the reality is people did not really like that we, we had moved there. And the only family in the block that was nice to us was this Mormon family. Uh, and so my mom was like, like definitely was like not going to send me to church with those crazy people with the pictures of like, you know, hell, but not like, you know, basically when the Mormon family was nice, it's like, you know, uh, when they asked if we'd go to the church, my mom was like, why don't you take our daughter? So there was a couple years there where I went to a Mormon church um, every Sunday and they were honestly like the, the, that family was just so nice. And I still weirdly have this like deep affection for Mormons, which is sort of funny, but, but um the, uh, uh, I mean, I don't remember anything about, like, I know I, I don't remember a single thing about, like, I remember the, the book, I think it's like the, for some reason, I imagine like platters on this blue book. I don't know. I remember nothing. I did remember that a lot of people wore hats in that church, like I, which again, California is weird, right? Like who, what people show up, but like everyone wore hats. Um, and, uh, and then I think one morning my mom came in like on a Sunday, I was like, okay, it's time for church. And I was just like, I don't want to go anymore. Like, I just was like, I, I just, 
And my mom was like, well, I guess the world didn't end <laughs> a year and a half ago. So I guess if you really don't want to go, you don't have to go. And that, that was, uh, uh, and um, so, yeah, that, that's, that was my foray into organized religion. But I, I would say for myself, it's, it's a question I ask a lot is if God exists uh, or, you know, the unit, some sort of larger order of the universe. And I don't have an answer to that, but uh, what I've come to, and I came to it actually in the process of writing this, this film, is I think I just prefer the person I am when I believe that there is some order to the universe. So I, I, don't, I don't know, gun to my head, I literally have no idea, but I don't, I, you know, frankly, this pandemic is like on days when you are suddenly like nothing, everything is meaningless and you might as well do nothing. It's like a straight road to depression. You're just like lying on the couch, like, well, then why do anything, right? And I just don't want to live a life where I spend most of my time thinking that. I think it's, even if it's like, it doesn't really matter if this happens or this happens, I recognize that it's better for me if I make choices that think they're part of some, you know, that there, there's, that somehow will make, have an effect in the world, right? Like if I believe that, I'm just happier as a person. Switching gears a bit, how, yeah, I, I, I'm assuming you grew up on, teen movies of the 80s and 90s. And there's a lot of uh, love in this movie, I think, for those for those movies, but it's also different. And I'm, and I'm something I've been thinking about a lot is how the archetypes in teen movies have changed. Like you don't seem to have, and I don't see a ton of contemporary teen movies, I gotta, gotta admit, but, but from what I have seen, it doesn't seem like, like the bullies are the same, you know, that, that, that that's just one example. How are, how are archetypes in those movies different than they used to be? Yeah, you know, it's so funny you say that about the bullies because I, I literally, I remember when I started to write it, I, cause I have, uh, uh, I have friends who have teenage kids and also I, you know, I, I teach improv for fun. And so I definitely have, uh, like sometimes I'll talk with, to teens and be like, hey, tell me, you know, tell me what life is really like. And one of the things that really struck me, and I remember this kid telling me this, is like, yeah, people on the football team aren't cool anymore. It's like the kids who are like, sometimes like the kids in choir, because we're in this weird like world where you have these Instagram stars, right? Like where people, like now the cool thing as how much of an influencer you are, how much reach you have, how many followers you have, which effectively has, yeah, it means like um, uh, people who perf like performers on some level, right? And, and as a marching band kid where being a marching band or choir was not, well, okay, marching band's still not cool. <laughs> like that's a bridge too far, but apparently there are people in choir who really are, like they are the BMOC, is, the person in choir. And I remember thinking that's so absurd and hilarious to me, but it also makes a weird kind of sense. And that's why I made um, uh, Trig, the, the, like he's, he can't, he's actually a terrible singer, <laughs> but he gets to like be, you know, he gets to perform. And um, yeah, and, it, and it's funny, every now and then I'll read something where someone has mistakenly assumed that Trig is also on the football team. And I'm like, aha, that's our old school thinking that uh, you know we just assume that would be cool, but but apparently not not so necessarily. And I ask, speaking of Trig, uh, I have a, a larger question about music, but um, what inspired the choice for him to perform a Berlin song? <laughs> Love that song. Like I honestly love that song. It's it's okay. So here's the thing. There, there there's a there's like a nexus of their songs. I 
love that we can't get the rights to. Like, for example, when I first wrote the script, I think I put a bizarre love triangle by New Order because in the script, there's all sorts of, and even in the production design, like I said to my production designer, give me triangles, give me like twinning. Like there's a lot of, like with my DP, I'm like always like, let's find ways of twinning. I want reflections. But also there, if you really watch it, there's triangles all over. When I write like a little pocket dialogue for the pastor, for, for Deacon Flores, and like, if you hear in the background, he's often referencing like, you know, our triangles are missing, you know, or the, the, the in, in geometry class, like or trigonometry class, like, again, he's giving this weird, it's very subtle in the background. Um, so I, that was like another, just like a fun little things like, oh, you know, bizarre love triangle, despite the fact that the lyrics are not quite right. Uh, but we couldn't even get the rights to that. And honestly, I didn't push that one that hard because I was like, what well, would be fun to perform though? That's a hard song to perform. And I remembered running down a list of like all these things I would love. And there's some obvious ones that would be hilarious, uh, but I didn't know, like pour some sugar on me would be hilarious to hear Trig sing, right? But I don't love that song. <laughs> <laughs> like, so I was like alternating between like, we could get the rights to that. And that would probably make that scene super funny. But I just was like, you know, I, it's my movie. I'm just going to fill it with the stuff I love. <laughs> it's honestly the truth. It's like all the films in it are all films I love. All the, and I feel like, I honestly think if someone remade was a, uh, uh, uh Masquerade by Berlin. I think it'd be a huge hit. I actually think that song is ripe for a remake. Uh, so that's that's uh, like, and I do think the lyrics did kind of work. Like I was, so I chose it because I was like listening to the lyrics. I'm like, actually, these lyrics are kind of perfect for this movie. Um, so that's how it got chosen. And and the Wolfgang Novogratz who plays Trig does an unbelievable job. It's too bad because for the sake of story, we had to really cut it down. Like otherwise, it could easily be like a whole video. Like he was amazing. Like amazing yeah the uh uh so yes that's that's the uh uh i wish i could tell you it was like more deep than that but no it's just i love no it. there's 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 nothing more deep than saying well that's i just like that song it, it's it is your movie <laughs> <laughs> well my my related question was just about the music generally i mean there, are those all songs that have personal significance to you like you know they're all um for lack of a better way of saying it, they're all very white songs. Um, mm. The Gordon, Gordon Lightfoot, Chicago. I mean, even yeah. Sharon Van Etten, great, great, great yeah. songs and lyrically, thematically very tied into concepts in the movies. Yeah. But are these just, are they, are they all songs that you had a connection to? They're all songs I have a connection to, but also they evoke a sense of place. You know, like this is not really a movie where suddenly you can be, um, like it, it, it like the Gordon Light, I do love Gordon Lightfoot, not gonna lie. I love all that like soft rock or classic rock. I'm all in on that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, but I also think that aesthetically for me, I, I, I had two touch uh, stones with my, my, you know, my creative collaborators, which is one is authenticity. I was like, I always want, you know, the clothes better look ripped or better look worn. Um, things have to feel real. But the second thing is timelessness. And so the irony is if you lean too hard into the aesthetics of the moment, right? Or whatever's in vogue now, um, frankly, the word in vogue is not even in vogue. But like, if you lean in too hard into that, it dates your movie immediately. Um, and so what's funnily enough timeless is something like Gordon Lightfoot, because if you go, I do a lot of road trips. If you drive into any diner, right? Like, yeah, they're probably gonna play like suddenly some Justin Bieber song might come on, but then it will be like Gordon Lightfoot or then it'll be some like bread, you know, like some 
some timeless song that will be playing there like 50 years from now, that song will still be there. Whereas Justin Bieber, maybe, maybe not. Ariana Grande, maybe, maybe not. Right. right? And so, and also I just, the lyrics of, of, of If You Could Read My Line fit so perfectly for uh, this film. So that again was one I, I chose. Now, If You Leave Me Now is honestly just a song I love that was written into the script. I love that song. I think, and, um, and I th think it is also incredibly timeless. And I was just thinking about, again, for me, I think it's interesting to see these young faces, right? Like to, I, to offset teens against something that feels very old school. Um, I think, I always feel like there's sort of a dynamic um, uh, sort of tension there that makes something feel more interesting to me than when you make a choice that is a little too in alignment with what you're saying. Um, and you're right, those songs are white. And a lot of that has to do, again, with those were the songs I remember from the 70s and the 80s. Um, uh, and yeah, and also the Sharon Benetton song actually came out when I was in pre-production on, uh, and I love that, I love her. But when I heard that song, I, I have a Spotify playlist where I constantly throw music on as I'm writing, as I'm in pre-production, then I'm like, okay, this song reminds me about the movie, this song, you know, and that immediately went on that playlist. And when I got a music supervisor on Tracy McKnight, I was like, here's a list of stuff I love. You know, I know I can't afford probably any of it, but uh, at least it, it gave her a sense. And she would put people in front of me to create songs like the Ruin Brothers and Joe Pernice. Um, and so that sort of, but yes, very much, I was trying to give a sense of Americana, you know, that, 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 that feel um, and anything too, um, that felt maybe too metropolitan, I think was going to disturb um, the, 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 that sense of place. I gotta ask, why is the movie PG-13? And when, when so many other movies that are PG-13 are like I know. filled with crazy violence and stuff and this is I don't know it may, it, may not, it may not make much of a difference to you it's just it seems so arbitrary and I was wondering if you thought about that at all I'm not sure I know the one thing they were saying at one point is there's only one swear word in the movie where uh Paul like chases the bullies and throws a rock and is like how you know like you know yeah how could you say that shit and drive away and they asked if I would change the word and I remember thinking about it and I was like trying to figure out what I would change it to that sounded at that. But I was like, I just don't buy a teen in that moment, a teenage boy would say something like shoot, you know? And I even talked to the actor about it and he was like, yeah. And he's like the world, oh my God, Daniel Deemer, such a big heart and such a great kid. Like the world's nicest, most polite guy. And he was like, I, I can't, if you change, like that is not how it will not feel right to him. And I was like, yeah, that's one I, I think for the performance and for, for, the believability, um, but I can't imagine that would turn it PG-13, but that's literally the only thing they had mentioned. Oh, there's a, uh, maybe it's because there's drinking at a high school party. Maybe, yeah. but it seems like our conversation right now is more PG-13 rated than- before. I know, I know. It doesn't really matter. I just, uh, I wondered if it was something you thought about. Um, okay, so when we first started talking, I mentioned that I wanted to ask you this question about, about how, um, how movies and other content get delivered to people and how um, there's, I think Netflix and, and, and these platforms, they offer such incredible opportunities for filmmakers and for film fans to see new kinds of work that they might not see otherwise. But 
what I was saying to you is that if I log into my Netflix, I'm not going to be recommended your film, but I watched this film and I absolutely loved it. And as someone, especially with a background in technology, um, I wonder what you think about the ways that algorithms are determining and segmenting, you know, like things out so that you're, you're sort of turned into a profile. And this movie would essentially just not appear in my, yeah. my version of Netflix. I know it's a, it's a really tricky one, right? Because, um, I mean, me, I just don't have as much, because uh, people are like, ooh, the algorithm. And maybe because I'm a, you know, I, I, my background is computer science. I don't get as, uh, you know, I, I al algorithms are really just like, you know, a computer's way of sorting data and a computer's way of sorting data sets, right? That's literally all it is. Um, and that doesn't mean that interesting things can't emerge. Um, and I can understand. So on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, it's it's a very imperfect uh, uh, way of recommending. Um, it, it's a lot better than it was like 20 years ago when I was working on it. But, you know, I, I, I get that it, it's imperfect. On the other hand, you could say that uh, people don't love a lot of choice. Like the truth of the matter is people like to be told, here's your two options. <laughs> or sometimes they like to be like, this is what you're watching. You know, like people actually don't love a world of choice. So I think if you are a media company, I can understand how it behooves you to be like, okay, we know that, like I'm guessing the way Netflix does their algorithm is like, they've seen that you love Chinatown and you also love Ferris Bueller and you also love, you know, I don't know, children of men. And they look at me and they're like, oh, Alice also loves those three things. And also Alice loves, you know, Ladybird. And so it's like, maybe we're like, even though that doesn't seem like maybe it's like, oh, enough things match between us. It's gonna, you know, and that's not terrible. You know, it's, 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 it's better than like, not, not like, like just being like, here's everything, go find it yourself. The thing I secretly hope for though, is, is what's lost in all of this is people talking to people, right? And um, the hope, I guess, would be like, look, hopefully you're not a shut-in who only decides to get your, your which, and I say that not, not to be, so like, I'm slightly worried we're headed there as a nation. <laughs> so I don't mean that as in like, oh, you know, like, I mean, like we might slightly be headed there as, as, as a, as a people that we seem to have lost the art of communication and conversation, right? Like I, I, I regularly, this is a slight tangent, but it's something I actually feel very strongly about. Um, I used to be that information for me was like a currency of intimacy. Meaning if like, I knew a lot about you, the only way I'd know a lot about you is if you told me, like, you know, you told me where you grew up, you told me who you're in love with, you told me what you like to eat. Not because I then Facebook stalked you and read up on what you tweeted. Now I know all the stuff about you, but you and I have never met, right? But we have turned into a nation of broadcasters. So we're a nation where everybody, like if I, you know, something happens to me rather than call up my good friend and be like, oh, this thing happened to me. I now decide I'm gonna put it on my Facebook and tweet it out for everyone to see. And what you lose there is the, is the interaction, right? And I'm hoping somewhere in all of this, uh, sort of to circle back around, is that at some point, maybe people are gonna realize, like, look, it, it, it's not, 
it's not about how much you know, or then being able to find the perfect, you know, being able to pick the perfect movie you're going to see based on all the data. There's also something to be said for the kind of connection you get when a friend says to you, hey, you know, you might like this, because that shows that they know something about you, right? Um, and so I guess that's, that's the thing, as I'm hoping, I mean, this is kind of an, uh, a, a weird way to answer your question, but I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, um, I guess as a computer scientist, I've always weirdly also been a bit of a humanist or a bit of a Luddite that I'm like, okay, this should make your life easier, but don't lose the peace where, where honestly, the only point I think of being human is to connecting with other people. So I guess don't, don't lose that. My, uh, my final question is, uh, speaking of social media stalking, I saw on your Twitter that uh, you know, a couple of pieces of fan art that people <laughs> have made for this movie. And I mean, that's got to feel yeah. absolutely incredible. And I just wonder what your reaction to seeing that kind of stuff is. I, I, I mean, it's been, that's the thing is like, again, I sort of laugh is like this cranky old Asian dyke. It's sort of hilarious to me that there's this whole group of, for the most part, young artists who are just like devoting, like, like just incredibly creative and, 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 you know, whether it's like music, like people have like sung songs that they've written or they they've covered or they've drawn and I'll see this stuff. And, and I guess maybe that's the best thing as a, as a, any sort of artist is when you can inspire someone else to decide to go do something on their, you know, but yeah, I, I, uh, uh, I, I'm always amazed. I did not anticipate that to happen. Um, and so, yeah, no, thank you for, for, for uh, pointing that out. Alice Wu, it was so nice to meet you and to talk to you. I, I just thought it was an extremely lovely film and I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. This was really lovely too. I, I really appreciate this, Eric. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, thanks for listening to Movie Maker Interviews. You can check us out at moviemaker.com where you will find stories every day about movies, movie making, and movie makers. Uh, we've got a print magazine which you can subscribe to on our website. Um, follow us on social at moviemakermag and uh, subscribe to this podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Say a nice thing or two about our podcast if you get the chance. And we will be back soon with another episode of Movie Maker Interviews, and we hope you will be there to join us. Until then, take care of yourselves. <laughs>